drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello, and good whatever time of day it is when you're listening to this. This is Drive-By Cinema, Season 2, Episode 46. Absolutely. With me from the coast of England is (laughs) my co-host, Paul. Rather nice way of saying, with him, next to some major effluent pipes from large conurbations, is his co-host, Paul. Yes, you're... Nestling by the country's favourite anus. <laughs> and I am Rick. Hello. Hi, Rick. Nice to meet you. Paul, if a major policy of yours were to it say... Well, oh, if, yeah, right, okay, if, 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 if. Yeah. If a major policy of yours was to say accidentally fall foul of human rights law... Please don't. It's been a busy week. Would you just would you decide that the best thing to do would be to get rid of human rights law that we didn't need those rights? Because perhaps we're not fully human. Maybe that's the reason. <clears throat> You're talking about Elon Musk and Twitter, aren't you? <laughs> Am I? What's he done? Oh, I don't know. I, I thought you were talking talking about. No, I, I'm going on again about the Rwanda thing. Aren't I? What Rwanda and thing? Rwanda, you know the plans, the conservative plans to send. Refugee seekers, asylum seekers to Rwanda. I thought we'd have Brexit. I thought we didn't have to listen to any any umpty dumpty European laws anymore. about about smoked salmon, kilns, and, and and pint markings on our on our on our, on our milk bottles. Well, because you're well educated, you know these things. Of course, you understand that the European Convention on Human Rights predates the European Union uh-huh. and nothing to do with the European Union. Although I see, I think you are required to. Uh, Subscribe to it in to order be to a member join. Of the right, okay. But that's not really surprising because, again, we are humans. The ECHR was a product of the Second World War. And Churchill was trying to figure out how you prevent democratic nations from turning to fascism. And it was perceived that one of the ways you could do it is to try to tell people uh, or to force people to accept that all humans have the same set of rights and these are what they are. Because the key way that the Nazis, I think, had had achieved their aims was by dehumanising you know, sections of the population. Yeah. And so it's a bit disheartening when you hear people in the comment section when people talk about the EHCR preventing the Rwanda deportations. People going, yeah, but they're not British. <laughs> It's kind of the point of the whole thing. Yeah, fundamental human rights. They don't have rights if they're not British, apparently. So we need a British in a, set in of rights. Inalienable, even if they are illegal aliens. Paul, do we have any corrections from last week? I know you don't, because... Well, I don't have to get anything wrong. Obviously you have. I just think we missed talking about something that I thought was quite important. Which How is, shit a film was. Last week's film was called... Yeah. This is a test for Paul. <laughs> oh, oh, Okay. Last week's film. Give me a clue. What was it about? Give me, like, give me one thing that happened. <laughs> not well. Not very much happened for three hours. Laura Dern. Oh, well, just stop, 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 stop. It was Inland Empire by the veritable and uh, esteemed David Lynch. Now I can normally be relied upon. I think to go on about the name of a film, the title of a film. Yeah. In this case, I didn't. And it, but it's an interesting name, isn't it? Inland Empire. 
What does it speak of to you? If it's about Hollywood, it speaks of the vineyards in Fresno. Another it's world. an actual place. It's oh. literally oh, a place. Oh, yes, it is. It is an it's actual place. Yeah, sorry. Go on. But it seems to have this kind of sort of allegorical, metaphorical meaning, doesn't it? it Presumably, to, yeah. To me, more recently, it's come to mean a game that I finished playing over the Jubilee weekend. Oh, Wordle? Not, no, no. A proper video game, you know, called Disco Elysium. What it is, is it's a role-playing game a computer-based role-playing game where you go around talking to people and conversation trees and stuff. Yeah. You start off... You might like you might like this, Paul, actually. You start off without really knowing anything about the game or who you are or what you are. You start off naked, basically, in a hotel room, face down, surrounded by empty bottles, and, and the place is trashed. Mm-hmm. And it turns out you've been on some kind of alcoholic bender and you're woken up with a hangover. And you've got amnesia. Your character in the game has complete amnesia before this moment. Yeah. You don't know who you are or where you are, why you are, what you're doing. Do you know when the last time you changed your underwear was? That can be inferred because you can see it. You know. That would be my first concern if I woke up with no memory. It's like, you know, how, how, <laughs> how skanky in my pants today? Well, you start at the baseline of skanky, surely. But I'm, I'm, you're suggesting there are more pressing existential concerns. Is that right? Not really. When you oh. start this game, the first thing you do is have to find your clothes. Oh, you can I, only. I should, I should be a games designer. Exactly. You only find one shoe, and you find a jacket and some trousers. You go outside and talk to somebody. It transpires that you're a policeman. Oh, hellfire! You're here to investigate a murder. The, the game develops from there. It, it's really interesting game. Partly because of the very rich and detailed world that you're in. At which point I probably have to pause and explain the history of how this game was developed. So it's from an Estonian guy, an author. And he wrote this book. And I'm going to describe it as diesel punk. It's kind of an alternative world. Similar technology to ours. Based heavily around oil-based petroleum stuff. So there's cars and, and things like that. What was the name it, of this novel? Yeah, I don't know. It was in Estonia. But, okay, I'm, sorry, sorry. I'm not even sure there's an English translation, although I'm sure there will be okay. soon, if not already. But originally, I, it didn't do very well. It was quite a bit of niche kind of... Is it sci-fi? Is it fantasy? You know, and it's kind of genre fiction that, you know, either has a cult following or... or it doesn't do very well, I suppose. So he was. I think the author was a bit frustrated. He decided to change tack, and he set up a game development company. I think he did it in the UK, actually, just probably because it was easier to recruit the staff to do it here. Uh, there was also a team in Estonia, I think. But they created Disco Elysium set in this world. So the interesting thing about it is it's not the world that we know, uh, it's, it's it's very different, but it has really strong kind of echoes and parallels. Because it comes from an Eastern European writer, it's really strongly politically kind of uh, described, you know. Yeah. All the different political factions are represented in this world that you're playing this game in. This, this idea that you've got amnesia is a really nice way of a sort of in-game reason for you also not understanding everything about the game world. In gaming for learning, we would say this is a nudge towards serious gaming, i.e. the purpose 
what we're studying for, playing for here. It's pseudo. Pseudo authentic. Yeah. Anyway, I highly recommend trying this game, Paul. I think you might enjoy it. Is it on Steam? It is on Steam. It's on most platforms. But there's a Final Cut version out at the moment. Because it's actually a few years old. It's 2018-19. But the Final Cut version has been spruced up slightly with more voice acting. I like the indie. So it is an indie game. It is an indie game, yeah. But in common with most role-playing games, your character is defined by statistics. You know, how strong he is, how agile he is. Uh, But there's a lot of mental stats to, you know, indicate whether he's empathetic or whether he's really smart or full of encyclopedic knowledge or, you know, analytical. One of the stats in Disco Elysium is called Inland Empire. And it represents your imagination in the game. About, how, you know, how imaginative the solutions and ideas you come up with. Wow. And a lot of the game of Disco Elysium is you conversing with yourself. So you're hearing, you know, your inner voice or, you know, your better self or some other part of your psyche. And you're conversing with yourself. I highly recommend Disco Elysium. And I, I, I sort of binged it over the Jubilee weekend. Really good. Did you finish? I did finish, yes. And it's one of the few video games that has got a really... You know, really strong emotional content. So I, I, th- I think I probably cried at the end of Disco, Disco Elysium. Oh, Rich, that's lovely. Thank you it's for sharing that. Thank you. Okay, next student, please. A little more show, a little less tell from the next one. Uh, no, sorry. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. So, Richard, uh, learning all about Disco Elysium is your segue into this this week's movie. Is that right, yeah? Yeah, let's do it. So let's start this week's movie, Paul, by talking about the name of this week's movie, which is... Which is Cloud Atlas. Cloud After our Atlas. refreshing cup of interlude music tea. What does Cloud Atlas mean, then, as a name? I, I briefly pondered this. It might be like a Ross Block Ted Block. What are they called? Ross... Ross Shark Test. Real short blot test, you know. You look at the clouds and you see an atlas of the world by chance. Uh, or it might be an atlas of the clouds. Or it might be something else, and it's probably going to be something else. Richard, are you about to tell us? Because I've got no idea. A cloud atlas is a compendium of cloud types, right? It's how you give oh. the names to all of the different clouds. It's not like a real atlas, because of course clouds move. So, you know, you, you can't like have particular cloud in a location can you because but in a way that's kind of what this film is about isn't it having the same formations in different places and times there we are that was how i felt about the title Uh so it's a book originally by david mitchell not that david mitchell and i think it was written in 2004 this film made by the wachowskis in 2012 yes 2012 Along with somebody else called Tom Twyker. Ah, yeah, now, what did he do? What did he do that's... Made the coffee? (laughs) No, his big film was Run, Lola, Run. Right. Have you seen it? No. Should I have? Yeah, you should have done. 1998, Run, Lola, Run, indie movie, German, about this young woman played by Franca Patente, I think is her name. 
she finds herself in a bit of a situation. Her boyfriend gets into a bit of trouble owing some money. Uh-huh. Some bad men are going to come after them. And we end up in this circumstance where she's trying to save her boyfriend's life by getting this money. She does it by kind of running through the streets of Berlin and there's a kind of time loop thing where she kind of fucks up. She so sort of goes back and does it all again and gets it all right. It's really cool. A very cool movie. I'm surprised you haven't seen it, Paul, because I've probably tried to show people it. Not ring any bells? Uh, no, it's it's not something you've run down my throat lace lately. No. All right. Or stuffed in my eyeballs. Well, <laughs> like a roasting pig as you're spitting me. I mean, I'm tempted to put it on the list of films, but it's a bit earlier than our normal kind of time scale. And secondly, it'll only encourage you to shove more Adam Sandler on there, won't it? So, oh, okay. I'm trepidatious now about doing that. It will be tit for tat, yeah. But it's a great movie anyway, really enjoyable film. So, All, all of which is a means to not talk about uh, this week's offering, isn't it, Richard, surely? No, I'm keen to get into it. Oh, good. Well, you start then. Last week, we, were, we, spent, we spent three hours watching David Lynch, where there was no plot. No. In, in some senses, nothing No, really there was happened. no plot, was there? I mean, you can safely say that, I think. <laughs> uh, and if there was a plot, it wasn't necessarily discoverable. Whereas this week, Richard, you've chosen to let us spend three hours? I think it's at least three hours. And, and, and this movie certainly does have a plot, doesn't it? Yeah, it has six plots, at least. Six Not plots. to say that you won't lose the plot when you're watching it, but it does have at least six plots, which are complete in and of themselves, but also slightly kind of mushy-mindedly interconnected, aren't they, Richard? That's a charming way of describing it, Paul. Well, mushy-mindedly. <laughs> The author of the book, David Mitchell, not that David Mitchell, he has said that he didn't right. think you could make a film out of his book. And I'd agree with him. <laughs> I really would. I really would. Now, in the book, and here's an important thing, yeah. these six stories are laid out in a particular way. It's like a Russian doll. Mm-hmm. So the oldest story, the story that starts earliest, is the, the outermost story. So part one is the beginning and part two is at the end. And yep. then progressively inwards, they get more and more, uh, you, you know... You, Resolved earlier. part one starts. Yeah, yes. exactly. So the middle... So can I just, can I just interrupt book. you here and give you some structure to, to your exposition, Richard? Uh, if you're going to say, you know, the outermost and the earliest was one and the last lattermost was six, then we get 1A, a chapter yeah. A of one. We get 2A, 3A, 4A, 5A, 6A. And then suddenly we get 6B, 5B, 4B, 3B, 2B, and 1B being the last installment of the story one. Would that be right? Perfect, Paul. Thank you. How, how straightforward it was to say it that way. Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> so in the... It's amazing. No sense. I don't get a hint of sarcasm for you at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's fabulous. We should meet this early once more, so one more time. Because I'm in... in a wonderful mood. <laughs> so in I the book... I love waking up this early. In the book, the fu- the most futuristic story is six, as it were, and that happens continuously at the centre of the book. Um, yeah, so even though there's a suggestion that somehow these things are connected through time, we've still got a directional time continuum, essentially, in terms of the storytelling. Yes. Well, yeah. conventional, you might think. David Mitchell, not that David Mitchell, said that he didn't think an audience in a movie would sit through, you know, 90 minutes of a film yeah. uh, to find like the sixth story starting there. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think they put up with that, and that's not how they do the film. Oh, is it not? No, do you not notice that's not how they do the film? 
The the stories in the film are interwoven rather haphazardly, certainly yeah. not in that Russian doll nesting style. Oh, wow. So you're saying the novel is constructed so, but the movie ain't? Correct. Ah. Correct. Do you know, I think they maybe should have tried to stick with the way that the novel did it. In the film, we start with the most futuristic story. Because we're actually starting, if you recall, with Tom Hanks with a big scar down his face. That's tribal Tom Hanks. That uh, is tribal Tom Hanks. Their, their, their language, I mean, it's still English, but it's evolved in an interesting kind of way, hasn't it? So the words speak. Yeah. The, way, the words speak that they... They speak the true true. <laughs> they speak the true true with the word speak. The word speak that they put put to use use is slightly <laughs> not jibing with the way we this day talk. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, great. The great thing about Tom is he will take to a role and not get a red face when it's embarrassing. So, so we should just explain that the way they've constructed this film is we've got six different stories set in six different time periods and six different locations. But Mm -hmm. they are the same actors. Pretty much, yeah. They're playing different roles and different characters. We don't get get all the actors in every part, though, do we? Like, Tom's liking all of them, pretty much. No, we don't. There's like a matrix in the Wikipedia page that tells you who plays which role in in which... Right, that would be useful. (laughs) A lot of my energy was trying to, you know... Was recognizing the faces and then realizing, ah, right, okay, I need to ignore what happened there because it's a different person, even though they're both dressed in kind of like Victorian clothes. Yeah, same person. It, I, it just got a bit confusing. It's all I can say. I don't need to explain that any further. If we were to like describe the whole thing, oh god, in a way, it's this idea that through reincarnation or whatever, whatever you want to call it, like yes. our souls are echoing or repeating you know, our relationships or our stories, not in detail, but in perhaps in a broader scale at different times. I, I think it's an idea that I don't know where it comes from. I'm not sure I ever remember reading it, but it just sort of feels like something people think about. And it, it It's not an idea that felt fresh or new to me, mm-hmm. except to say that I'd never seen it written down perhaps in quite the same way. Or, or you know, in a film in quite the same way. But it's, I'm very familiar with the idea that people might think that, you know, the relationships they were making or the people that they're interacting with, they might have done it before, perhaps in another context or another time. But yes. Do you have that same experience? God. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly how it... That's, that's the kind of thing I took away, is there's an eternal battle and you're going to meet... Your kind of is that something that you feels like a familiar idea to you? It's is a very it, familiar it, idea. Yeah. So is it like a cultural thing, or I mean, where does it come from? Or is it just know. a feeling everyone has? We've said this before, I think, but it bears repeating. The idea of karma, karma, and karmic reincarnation is pretty unpleasant. The idea that everything happens for a reason, which is the folks sort of spirituality expression of the idea, I suppose. Yeah. But not the other people's that... reasons. It's all about what you did, isn't it? Yeah, oh, it's incredibly self-centred, yeah. Hugely so. But the idea that because of something you've done in a past life, the consequence of that is how you've been born into the current one or a future one, you know. So if you, if you do something bad, you might come back as a weevil or something. It w- winds you up in some very unpleasant places, Yeah, like 
believing that if you're born disabled, it's because you were bad in the past. Your soul was bad. It's awful, isn't it? Yeah, it is quite an unpleasant idea. Born of, I think, a genuine human concern to think that everyone gets their just desserts, mm-hmm. sort of just world hypothesis thing, which again, just, the just world hypothesis itself is uh, an unpleasant and stupid thing. That's, this is the idea that, you know, everyone's lot is as you deserve. You know, if you're poor, it's because you're not forward driven enough or ambitious enough or inventive enough, you know, and not because you happen to have been born, you know, in particular circumstances that mean you'll never really be able to to make a success of yourself. No, uh, for me, actually, those things are true. However, <laughs> really, <You're> yeah, <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a wobbly, limp kind of lame person. <laughs> I admit it, you know, but I don't think it's to do with karma. <laughs> Sorry, go on, Rich. Yeah, so that's the basic. The basic idea is it all threads through. Okay. Now, can I just say, if you were going to write a plot, and, and and there are three ways or four ways or five ways to do to do a plot that isn't a linear plot. I mean, let's think about electrical circuits. You could have series or parallel, couldn't you, really? Or you could have nodes, I guess. You could right. have a nodal, like, spanning out from a centre, like a spider's diagram, you know. And various novelists of the postmodern persuasion have tried to do non-linear presentation of plottings. Or even to suggest that plots are you know, a creation of the writer and read it together and don't really exist, if you like, within the book itself. That it's just a jigsaw puzzle that you might or might not get, get wrong. So, so here he hasn't really gone for linear or parallel. Here he's gone for, if, you know, if the plot were, were an electrical circuit, here he's gone for a tangled bundle of wires, hasn't he, Richard, really? I mean, obviously... Which the- is an interesting choice. The film is more tangled, you could argue, than the book because of the structuring. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I think this movie is almost the film that Waterworld would have been if you'd slipped it some acid in the Gatorade kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, well, the the, <laughs> the most futuristic bits are sort of post-apocalyptic. They are very Waterworld, yeah. But kind of with that really dead, dull Waterworld feel, I feel. Like, not very convincing sort of ethno, ethno Mad Max tribal futures, like, kind of Kind of now, yeah. It's it's drama class dystopia. Isn't it? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That you you've 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 cut it down to size better than I ever could do. There. Thank you. So yeah, this is like almost like Tom Hanks's Kevin Costner moment, isn't it? But Tom Hanks survived this movie, and Kevin didn't survive Waterworld. Because I mean, Tom's everywhere in this movie. Well, I think the actors must have. <clears throat> Got confused about who they were playing. Yes, yeah, uh, the actors I think must have. I, I, no, I think they, <laughs> they must have loved this movie. It's a real opportunity. <laughs> it's an opportunity for them, isn't it, to do to lots go back of stuff. to GCSE drama? Yeah. There is a, a review or a description of this movie somewhere which says there's a lot of prosthetic noses. In <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's Tom that plays uh, a, a sort of present day two thousand, the early two thousands. Uh, Irish gangster, is it Tom? <laughs> yeah, it is Tom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's got a huge concom there. You know, it's like a massive, massive prosthetic. Now, at the end of the movie, they go through 
all of the big main sort of actors, don't they, on the bill, and they show you all of the roles that they played. They yeah, Halle Berry things. only gets two, obviously, because she's not quite so versatile an actor, actress. No, she, Halle Berry was in one, two, three, oh, four. Oh, oh she five, is a versatile six. actor. She's I in all of them. Mind. She's a very versatile actor. Absolutely. <laughs> I think we have to quickly do the, the stories. No. Right, I could do two of them, and you're going to have to move on. I, I know the connections between the first two. Can I, okay, can I, I and I promise I'll make it linear, because when I explain plots, okay. I like to jump okay. to the plot spoiler. Okay, let, listen. Okay, so we're starting <clears throat> in 1849, Pacific Islands. Oh, fuck. I know I've not done that one. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll come back to that later, okay. No, I'll do that one. I'll do that okay, one. Okay, you do that so, one. So this is I, I'm story. starting. I'm starting... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've kind of skipped that one. I'm starting in 1936, so you okay. get me to 1936. Okay. We'll get you to 1936. So we're going to start in 1849. Up on board. Tickets, please. Pacific Islands, somewhere, I guess, around New Zealand or something, I think. I don't know. Uh, but there's a young guy, Adam, I think he's called, who's a lawyer, apparently, and he's gone out there to get this priest to sign this document. I didn't really follow what that document was all about. But he winds up going back ah. on a... He sees a Maori... I think it's supposed to be Maoris, but he sees a Maori guy Could getting be whipped. Fijian, whoever, yeah. He's getting whipped by his slave owner. They've obviously been enslaved. He winds up going back home to the US on the boat because his job was done there. And joins the abolition movement. Talk about skip to the end, Paul. <laughs> that's what I like. Yeah, I'm a Sagittarian. I arch to the target. He gets sick, or, or uh, the doctor tending to him, I think he's poisoning him. Whether he was sick in the first place, I'm not sure. But he's being poisoned on the voyage. And they keep him quarantined, uh, locked away, so he doesn't infect everybody else. And the doctor's stealing stuff from him. He's trying to get the key around his neck, which presumably to his treasure chest or something. And the the boy that he saw being whipped is a stowaway. And he yes. helps him, and he, he doesn't die in the end because of the help of this this boy. And as you say, when he arrives in the States, he joins the abolition movement because of his experiences with this. And slave. because Even the slave, though, slave owner was his father and mother. Uh, but anyway, that's the story, yeah. At the end of it all, this is, I think, the last scene of the movie, isn't it? Except for possibly Tom Hanks. But at the, at the end of his journey, he's saying to the people in the States, his family, that he's against slavery. And uh, mm-hmm. Hugo Weaving says something like, you'd just be a drop in the ocean. And he says, yeah, but what is an ocean, but, you know, lots of drops, drops of water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's the Pacific Island story. Right, okay. So I don't really see any direct connection with installment one to installment two. Mm. Right, okay, but so maybe you'll point out how this how that's connected to our next guy, who is English composer Robert Frobisher. Okay. Uh, he's Cambridge, in, 1936. 1936 in Cambridge. He, in Cambridge, you know, he's met the love of his life, who is called, give me a second here, he's called Sixsmith. Okay. Sixsmith, yeah. Okay. Uh, Sixsmith is a Cambridge scientist. Uh, young Frobisher is more of the artistic persuasion, maybe for that reason, disinherited by his traditionalist father. Uh, so Frobisher is eager to avenge his father with, with, with brilliant work, and he's a composer. And so he heads off to find Ayres, who's like an aging octogenarian, previous, obviously, previous classical music great, who's now looking for, and this is a word I didn't understand, an amaunensis. Amaunensis. Which I presume is some sort of musically composing acolyte. Is that right, yeah? 
I don't know. Isn't, isn't it? Is a person employed to write or type what another dictates or to copy? There you go. By now, of all like of, of all the six stories, I thought this one, you know, convinced me about being real in itself, and you know the relationship, the cantankerous relationship these two enjoy. Just it was fleshed out quite believably. You know, I, I could I could believe that this kind of master acolyte relationship would happen in PhDs around the world or, you know, in, in composing circles. So I thought it was all quite convincing. He's, uh, not, now, he's not a very sympathetic character, is he, though, Frobisher? I found him a bit no, of an insufferable he's quite clipped and cold, but he's, he's a, you know, he's a bisexual Cambridge sort of composer, isn't he? So I, I pretty much think that, you know, entitled uh, Abel, an educated young gentleman of the era, would have behaved like that. I, I found that quite, quite, you know, quite convincing, actually. Do you know? Uh, it's just difficult in that story... Oh, to support, to sympathise with him, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, clearly he's the guy you're supposed to have sympathies with, because what happens is he he helps this old guy write uh, his sort of last great symphony kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He's also After working a start or two, yeah, yeah. He's also working on his own work, his original work. As he's sort of completing it, uh, the relationship between the two of them break down in in some key ways, and at some stage, he's blackmailed about his sexuality in order to give the sex debt that he's written on his own to uh, the older guy. To the uh, older guy, he wants to claim errors, credit. Yeah, it it comes to a scuffle and a scuffle, and there's a shooting, and he has to run off. He runs off, climbs a tower, commits suicide just before his boyfriend uh, Sixsmith discovers him. Uh, having written him a parting letter. Okay, end of mine, part two. Part three, the connection is Sigsmith's letters are discovered and Sigsmith appears as an older man in 1973 in San Francisco. Over to you, Richard. Okay, hold on, though. Important thing about Uh, this work is... It's called... The Cloud Atlas Sextet. Sextet, there we go. It's a sextet because there are six stories. And whilst he was writing this... He was reading the journals. There's of a connection. Okay, Adam, the lawyer, in the first story. Actually, he only got part one of the stories. Part two, as it turned out at the very end, was like uh, propping up a chest of drawers somewhere in the in the old guy's place. But he, that was part of his inspiration for the Cloud Atlas sextet. Was this idea of feeling, you know, people connections? I don't know. Like you, I'm not sure what connection he felt with the first story. It's, it's very loose, isn't it? It's a very but loose idea. Two to three is quite clear. We're heading to Black Exploitation 73. We've got an investigative journalist. She's looking... Halle during, Berry. Halle Berry. I, no, she's, she's quite convincing acting this one, I think. And she's looking to get, you know, a big sort of Watergate scandals c- kind of story to make the front page. Uh, and she meets Sigsmith in a broken elevator. Richard, over to you. The older Sigsmith implies that he's got some kind of whistleblower thing going on. About nuclear reactors. About nuclear power. So the the big news in 1973 is there's this millionaire guy, this played by Hugh Grant, who's like the Elon Musk of his day, I suppose. Lloyd Hooks, I think. Yeah, I think Lloyd Hooks. Is. Yeah, that's that's his character's name, and he's about to open this big nuclear plant, and Sixsmith guy seems to have some report about the plant that might expose some safety concerns. So our investigative journalist, played by Halle Berry, is on on the case. And she also finds letters that Sixsmith was carrying around with him. Because Sixsmith gets assassinated because of his whistleblowing. 
And she finds all these letters which were written from the young Frobisher to the young Sixsmith in the Cambridge days. And she's obviously reading about this love affair whilst she's trying to locate this report. Eventually, she does locate the report. It's given to her by somebody called Isaac Sachs, who is a scientist, and I'm not sure how that's... And played by Tom Hanks. Oh, there we go. And they have Tom Hanks a role. They have a connection, a connection which, again, is going to be an echo in the future stories, Uh in which, you know, they obviously kind of feel something for one another although they only meet briefly and there's an assassination attempt against Halle Berry where Hugo Weaving who is the bad guy play, playing someone called Bill Smoke uh, tries to run her off a bridge and she manages to escape from that doesn't she and there's finally there's a shootout when she meets up with a, another whistleblower guy or perhaps the person who leaked the report in the first place and it turns out that what Bill uh, sorry what this hooks guy is trying to do is he's been employed by big oil to start up a nuclear plant with safety problems that he's not going to act on and then there's going to be some disaster which will turn the public off nuclear power and back big to oil so it's a massive conspiracy power, by the power of big oil yes she's uncovering there so sabotage or scuppering plans to 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 you know to make nuclear look like uh, the the unfairly dangerous option that it is or isn't. London, 2012. I love this one. Okay. It is like, you know, layer cake, kind of 2012 London. And it's, it's the most light-hearted. Comic break, I thought. It's, this is, yeah, it's yes. the most light-hearted yeah. one, yeah. This is a story of a publisher called Timothy Cavendish, played by Jim Broadbent. Played very well. But, you know, Jim plays the, these kind of characters like in his sleep, doesn't he? So, so what's the story? It's gangster. He's Irish, presumably. Gangster Dermot Hoggins. He's publishing the book of, of his all his misdeeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a point at which, because the Irish gangster throws one of his critics off the balcony at the launch party, yeah. at the launch yeah. party, uh, he winds up in prison, of course. But the book, but massive, sales. massive sales. It's about the biggest book in Timothy Cavendish's publishing career. <laughs> the Irish writers. And criminals' family <laughs> gang. Up. They turn up looking for all the money. <laughs> Unfortunately, the publisher... First of all, the publishing deal, he'd obviously managed to secure complete copyright ownership. Yeah. So there's no royalties due, really, to the Irish gangster. Because they're not really having that. Unfortunately, also, this Timothy's got lots of debt. And it's just swallowed up all of the uh, the debt that he's, uh, that he's got. He's being sw- swallowing up all of his profits. Only one so, thing to do, go on the lamb, go on the run, and escape these yeah, well, No, no, he goes to his very rich brother, doesn't he? Yeah, and, he, and, and he, his brother says, you better run. I know where somewhere you can hide. It's called the Aurora House Hotel. So he sends him up to Scotland, which, of course, in an echo, of course, is where Frobisher went from Cambridge oh, he did, to yeah. work with Ayres. He went to Edinburgh. So Cavendish, he, he catches the same train line. You see, you see a beautiful image of... Uh, uh, you see, the, I didn't notice these parallels. And he winds up checking into what he thinks is a hotel, and he signs what he thinks is the guest register. But actually, he's just committed himself <laughs> to a residential stay. At... I mean, it's a stretch to so say there won't need to be a second signatory present at the time. <laughs> you know, I'm not capable of looking after myself, therefore my signature will count, you know, as, as the, the transfer, transfer authorization to... It just wouldn't work like that, would it? But anyway, let's accept it. 
So, well, it is owned by his brother, though, isn't it? This care home. That's oh, right. Okay. That's, so he's able to manipulate the circumstances, and it, and presumably he's already countersigned another document. Okay, so. we'll allow it. Yeah, yeah. So he finds himself now stuck in an authoritarian old folks' home, but quite comically authoritarian. Well, it's presided over by Nurse Noakes, played by <laughs> yeah. Hugo Weaving. Hugo Weaving, of course, he's been in drag before, hasn't he? He was in yeah. uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. But it's it's, it's a carry it's a carry on movie. It's sort a, it's, of style. I like I like this I like this comic break. At least he was trying to just relax and be something. Absolutely, he's thwarted in his in his attempts to just walk <laughs> out of the place. But he ends up finding a kind of an escape committee that meet in the basement. <laughs> it's like Dad's Army or something, isn't it? It wouldn't be funny on its own if you think, oh, God, how naff, you know. Uh, but because the rest of the movie is so po-faced, it's just enjoyable for the fact it doesn't fit, you know. They manage to escape. They do a daring escape. They run through the gates in, in a car that is stolen. And, of they, course, they, they start to pick up some doddery old gentlemen. They go down the pub and, and they're discovered there, but... They, I, they managed to turn the Scottish supporters of a That's football right. match the, onto the guards. The old guy who so far has only said two words, he kind of stands up in a chair and gives a speech about them being under attack and, you know, for Scotland and all of the Scottish pub goers have a fight with the care home workers who've arrived. So he manages to make his escape, doesn't he, from, from the ah. situation. How does that story end, though, at the end? Well, the point is he, he has to go on the line. He has to go on the road eventually because... The investigative journalist, uh, he's got the manuscript of her story, Ray's story, is that right, yeah? Louisa Ray, played by Anna Berry. Yeah, and so he takes her story forward with him kind of thing. So there is a direct connection between the two of them. But also, the side story is that Cavendish, in Scotland, he'd nearly gone to the house of an old flame that he'd nearly... In another life, he might have spent the rest of his life with, but I think uh-huh. he had to he had to jump out of the window when he was a young man, didn't he? Because their parents had discovered them. He goes back to that old flame. I think the the last scene is him with Susan Sarandon, who who is Ursula. I do remember Susan Sarandon being uh, being pa- face being painted and being like a future Mad Maxian, but <laughs> don't, don't no, that's being... a different story. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I got confused. It might be a dreamscape. It might be somebody's dream. I'm not sure. In the end, his. Experiences embolden him to go back to his old flame and meet her again because he he had hesitated on the threshold of the doorstep the first time. God. Okay, now it gets all wibbly wobbly because we've got two future scapes: one in two thousand one hundred forty-four, one in two thousand three hundred twenty-one in a post-apocalyptic Hawaii. I'm just not going to say anything about either of these, Richard. So you Neo Soul, 2144. Please summarise them. This is a future where they use a lot of AR, don't they? So you can have like a blank room, pretty much like my flat with grey walls and concrete, but they do some holography or something and all of these images appear. And so there's a kind of restaurant called Papa Songs, I think. Yeah. We meet Somni451 and she is a fabricant... For that restaurant, is that a right? Fabricant, yeah. She's some kind of artificial waitress. And they all get kept in kind of a chest of drawers at the back of the restaurant. And then they emerge and they do their waitressing. But she starts to have kind of a, a separate life, you know. I think she wakes up out of her normal duty cycle in the night. And I think she sees another of the a clip of the movie of Cavendish's... Oh, yeah, that's right. Someone's made a movie of, of Cavendish's story. 
from 2012, which is a really nice touch because in that Cavendish is played by Tom Hanks, I think, isn't he? Oh, God. Yeah. Who's playing That's right. playing, Jim Broadbent? Playing, oh, playing. God. Rose and Gildenstein, but just <laughs> so badly. Okay, uh, so she joins, to cut a short, very long, very, very long story short, she joins the, the rebellion movement, is that right? Yeah, against the crypto corporate uh, hegemonic plutocracy they live in. Yeah, the problem with this is it's all kind of crudely sketched, isn't it? Really, yeah. really badly done. Yeah, it's not convincing at all. So this, there is, as you say, some. They're in costume, and that's about it. <laughs> there's some, there's some futuristic authoritarian regime called the Unanimity, I think it's called, and there's a rebellion against them. She becomes really the kind of mouthpiece of the rebellion. She does this. They take her to this broadcast place, and they do some kind of. She does some kind of speech. I suppose she's speaking to all the fabricants and all of the people who don't agree with the unanimity. We know later that this has been impactful later on. We know that, that she must have had a big impact because they do sacrifice a great deal to give her the ability to do a, a, a speech on the on the radio. You'd think they'd just give her a podcast, wouldn't you? That, that would sort it out. <laughs> but really, I mean, it's so unconvincing. I don't even remember the hit Let Me Think About It by Fetty Legrand and Ida Kaur. Anyway, it's a it's a dance <laughs> it's a dance thing from two thousand six two thousand seven. And it's did like, that, did the, it really speak to you, Paul? <laughs> shall I play it for you? We'll have to be a, a, a bit of copyright on this. Right. Okay. Anyway, they kind of make a cheat video where they pretend to be robots and sort of do the jerky robot movement. Yeah. Okay. Yes, uh, okay. I, I, I was just reminded uh, that's how convincing this stage of our Tangle Wires was. Huh. There's actually some gunfighting and stuff, and there's some neat technology. Like, I didn't that like bit this where, one. Where, oh, right. Where they make a bridge. They've got, he's got like a device. Yeah, don't try to convince me. Oh. I want to get onto Tom Hanks' face tattoos in part six. Part so, six. Can you, before this, can you just tell me the connection? The connection is that Cavendish's memoirs are now a film starring Tom Hanks. Uh, uh, no, starring Tom Hanks playing somebody else. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and so she rebels and everything comes tumbling down. Everybody's kind of free for a short time, maybe? Is that it? Well, also, the music in Papa Songs is the, the Cloud Atlas sextet. And, and we know that because... Oh, so karma's proven, yeah. And way back when, way back in 1936, when Vivian Ayres was uh, trying to tell Frobisher what his l- latest symphony idea was, he yeah. says he had a dream when he was in a restaurant and all of the waitresses looked the same and he heard this music playing and he then goes, whatever, and sings the song and Frobisher writes it down and interprets it. So suddenly dies a martyr, having kind of temporarily liberated the people. But 200 years later, in 2321, in a kind of like Waterworld-style Hawaii... uh, 106 winters after the fall. Everybody's semi... Not that the fall. Everybody's semi-Waterworld, okay. Uh, Somni is now uh, a worshipped deity. She's a goddess, yeah. She's a goddess, yeah. Somni, yeah. Yeah. There's a tribal society. So you've got tribal Tom Hanks with tribal tattoos. Who do the who do the other word staff speaking thing. Okay. So their word staff is is not same to ours. I spent five minutes not having a clue what they were saying. <laughs> it was completely baffling. 
it's just so back of a postcard, you know. I mean, it's just so not the way to build, you know, a future tribal world, isn't it? But to build the worldscape, you know. They live in this tribal society, but it's a very violent place because there's another tribe. they've They've all got sharpened teeth. There's another tribe with Hugh Grant, I think, as a leader. With bigger face tattoos. And, and, I, yeah, and face they, they wear face paints, yeah. Uh, and they're much more kind of warlike and stuff. They're preying on the kind of much more peaceful Tom Hanks-style tribe. And there's also kind of futuristic humans as well. And that's represented by Halle Berry. And she arrives on this kind of super yacht, like Elon Musk or, or you know Jeff Bezos just coming into... Caribbean island, but she she sort of buzzes in a super. What's that about? She's like doing some kind of anthropology, isn't she? She kind of gets off the boat. And that she's future chatting. rocket spaceship boat thing was so naff. <laughs> but it was two thousand what two thousand and twelve. Okay, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Now she obviously gets on quite well with Tom Hanks. He's very suspicious of her though because she's a uh, from a wayway or whatever they call it. Right? Yeah. I don't know. Don't know what words they use. I don't know why there's this difference between humans either. I don't know why some have got all the tech and others are using like sticks and fire and stuff. A thing occurs. She's trying to get somewhere that he thinks is bad juju, you know, but she wants a guide for them to take her there up a mountain or something like a sacred mountain. What the and fuck? It, indeed, Tom Hanks does constantly. What the fuck? Tom Hanks does constantly get visions of this devil, which is, what is that shit. It's Hugo weaving in a top hat. He's actually he's like Papa Lazarus. Isn't he? <laughs> it's just like he's like a giant parrot perched on his shoulder. It's like you know, oh, good, good angel, bad devil, good angel, bad devil. What a lot of horseshit! And oh. you know he's not there because yeah, you see him at different angles, and he always appears like over his shoulder, doesn't he? He doesn't move around. Oh. God. But that doesn't happen anywhere else in the movie. So no, what's that? He's not like the one thing the one thing that would easily be able to trans <laughs> transpose realities yeah. and time would That's be right, the yeah. phantasm and, and oh just what? 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 A phantasm that can't move time, but trains that run exactly the same direction through to Scotland, you know, just what? It, I, no. I'm not having it. I got annoyed at that point. It seems to be trying I've to say that... have got a really that long fuse, so there we go. If you live in a kind of primitive tribal society, you're kind of given to these visions of Hugo weaving in a top hat, which... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've probably got some animistic sort of ritual practice. Yeah. Anyway, he, he does eventually... Then, you know, then a spaceship arrives and you don't start worshipping the woman and coming out of it. God, I'm not sure about all this, really, to be honest with you. What happens is, uh, like, Tom Hanks' daughter or something called Catkin or something... She steps on to kind of bad fish and her foot swells up and she's going to die. But Halle Berry's character has got future medicine, you know, and she's got a thing that she can inject. She's not supposed to intervene, oh. though, because she's got some kind of prime directive going on. I don't fucking know. She needs to not get really. to a far-off planet, yeah. yeah. Maybe with the memoirs of their goddess. She needs to find something. a transmitting station to send a signal off-world to somewhere else. To hopefully get that's rescued. where Somni made her final recording before she was sacrificed. That's right, yeah. Connections, Having guys. saved his daughter, she convinces tribal Tom Hanks to lead her to the top of the mountain. They go up there, she switches everything on. He sees a picture of Somni from the previous story. He goes, Oh my, you know, it's the goddess. 
Halle Berry tries to explain she's not really a goddess, she's just a woman. She was a waitress, you know. <laughs> He's not too happy about that, is he? I think uh, no. Hugo Weaving makes another appearance and tells us, does more Papa Lazaru stuff on his shoulder and he's not. Uh, but ultimately, Halle Berry and Tom Hanks are lovers. They've been lovers through these different stories, or at least one other's different story, through the ages. That's kind of the end of the movie, isn't it? I think we end with Tom Hanks, the guy we saw at the very beginning. Now, the older version of tribal Tom Hanks, he's got a big scar on his face because he was attacked by some stuff. Living on a distant planet, yeah? Oh, yeah, they are on a distant planet. Yeah, because they've got them in the boat spaceship hovercraft, the hydrofoil thing. Uh, which obviously can fly between galaxies. And- no, no, they get rescued because of the signal. And oh, okay. Halle Berry is his wife, and he's telling the story to all their grandkids or something. And there we are. That is the Cloud Atlas. Right. So I think let's just jump into some initial reflections or, or, or condemnations of this movie. Not convoluted, but tangled plot that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Uh, the indecision between stochastic and deterministic karma and sort of rebirth because like if if they're both on the same train going through scotland we're saying that geography kind of has a determined place in essentially what we're talking about is alternate universes here aren't we if we're talking about reincarnation we're talking about the same life being relived in different in different universes aren't we different time spaces so that to me was problematic if phantasms can't jump between these realities uh, so yeah, that was all problematic. I think it wasn't quite Waterworld, but with Dave, Kevin Costner, it was more like Cats with Dame Judi Dench. This wasn't it, really. It was <laughs> people who didn't act badly, but were just asked to do ridiculous things. Well, there is quite a lot of like cross-racial kind of makeup and prosthetics, particularly in Neo Soul. There's a lot of kind of yellow face. What? What? That yellow face was that was weird because they kind of stretched his eyes to a certain sort of way. That was, I don't know, problematic, let's just say. Off-putting at best. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I mean, I'm just going to say one thing, okay, and it's a series of four sentences. Can you do them Russian doll style? Can you start (laughs) sentences? (laughs) That's brilliant. It is, it's a cascade, okay. Often, you know, if you're going to work as I did in, you know, data administration, the kind of bottom-rung temping jobs that would pay you about... 20% 20% over minimum wage standards. Did you have to wear yellow face to do those jobs? <laughs> no, you often had to wear, like, you know, if it's QC, you often had to work, wear steel boots in a laboratory for all reasons. Anyway, so if you worked in those kind of places, uh, you might often see the sign, you don't have to be mad to work here, but it helps. <laughs> That's my first observation. I, I just want to riff on that. You know? Okay. Uh, maybe the people that are working there aren't mad, and I don't want to make disparage. I don't want this to be about... Mental health. Madness, okay. No. Okay. Just about having the wrong idea. So don't think mental health. Just think about behaving badly and behaving in a way that's not productive or helpful to other people. So then you might extend that, you know, if you walked into a workplace and people were throwing confetti at the walls and they were expecting it to spell, you don't have to be mad to work here, but it helps. (laughs) You think you might have arrived at the right place. But then if you moved on to the next place and you walked in there and people were taking scoops of their own shit and writing you don't have to matter to work here but it helps on the walls you kind of think yeah yeah i can see that if you then arrived at the fourth place and people you know were taking two hands and scooping the shit from the from the asses and throwing it against the wall and expecting it to spell you don't have to be mad to work here but it helps 
you definitely know you'd arrived at the right place. And in that sense, I think we've arrived at the right place with this movie. <laughs> That's all I have to say, really. Rich, what did you think about it? And you probably loved it, didn't you? It is like Tenet. This is like this is like a masterpiece like Tenet, isn't it? No, it's not a masterpiece like Tenet because <laughs> <laughs> Now Rich is gonna give me some scientific reasons why it's not a masterpiece like Tenet. It's just what? This is just a little bit whimsical. I'd say it's just shit. I mean, for me, it's just obviously shit. But Rich is probably going to be able to just justify this. Go on, Richard, please break it down for us. It's just not very profound that the link between some of these stories is someone <laughs> it's was reading. Not profound. It's a train journey on one of them. <laughs> yeah, someone was reading a postcard that somebody somebody once wrote. So we're suggesting physical objects can kind of transmit the, the future and the past to each other, kind of thing, or whatever. No, it's just or the truth in. The truth of the universe is contained in every single particle. If you think about it, if a particle knows where it is, then it must therefore know about the mass and location of all the other mass in the universe, yeah? Well, that is more profound than anything this movie has said in so three what hours. What you could say, <laughs> if a particle knows where it is, we don't yes. as a quantum, but if the particle knows where it is in its own quantum reality, it must have, it must have complete knowledge of the rest of the universe, if you think about the forces being acted on. So you well, could say that, e- that you know, big is small. The smaller you get, the more information is stored in a quantum state. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, isn't it? I thought you weren't on it in the morning, Paul. But that's that's insane. True. That's, no, that's that's my deepest thought ever, and I've had it for about eleven years now. <laughs> it's my only one that I bring out at parties when I meet clever people. Go on, Rich. Go on. It's just a whimsical set of stories that are vaguely linked together with a kind of nice... This is Hallmark greeting cards. It isn't as bad as what... It is. It is. Sorry to interrupt. We can edit that later. But it is. It's like Hallmark greeting cards, Waterworld, that isn't as bad as Waterworld. That's all I can say. This is like six episodes of Black Mirror kind of mixed up. <laughs> mixed up? Yeah. <laughs> on the editing... T- on the editing... Oh, God. On the editing table. Brilliant. Yeah. On the cutting room floor, if it's only cutting. But the, all of that said, there's nothing totally wrong with this film, no. except except <laughs> for the bad makeup and the yellow face. Maybe L- last week we had to spend three hours watching a movie that was difficult to watch, <laughs> and occasionally I couldn't watch. I didn't actually feel turned off by this film. I didn't have to stop, and I didn't fall asleep. I was generally paying attention, and I was generally entertained by it. I guess you watched it in about six sittings, didn't you? Actually, no, no. I mean, it's a long movie, three hours, which which is like two movies long, yeah, two standard yeah. movie lengths, yeah, yeah. And I managed to watch it in about two and a half sittings. Most because uh, I don't count like the bit where I have a, like a ten minute coffee break. I count that's half a sitting when I break away like that, yeah. Sure, sure. So sure. you know, so so, so yeah, pretty successful for me because usually I'm usually one and a half sittings for any movie that I watch. But I think if you're looking for anything really profound. Like what you've just said, you're not going to find it in this film. No, I mean no. it just says really slavery is bad. You know, be nice to people. This is like yeah, if this were fashion, this would be like Primark copying Marks and Spencer's last year's sort of <laughs> favorite sort of flower top for women. <laughs> like they're copying things that aren't great anyway, but you know, do their job. Yeah, that's but right, why they're so. copying it, I don't know. And do they? It's there's a famous John Hegley poem, isn't there, about the girl that's copying his work while he's in primary school. And to paraphrase, and I hope John doesn't sue me for taking his poem in. Uh, it's like you know, when I was a child, I would sit in the class and write my work, and the child next to me, she would copy my work, and the teacher would come 
look at my work and nod, look at her work and say, look at these words, they mean absolutely nothing whatsoever. <laughs> uh, and it, of course, John does it funny with a Hessian dog. Uh, but yeah, so I'm reminded of that also. It's just what you're copying, they don't understand what they're copying, why they're doing it, no real reason. But it comes out inoffensively kind of entertaining, doesn't it? And the costumes are good. Costumery, yeah, very good. Not so sure about the uh, dystopian future world. But, uh... <laughs> you know, Man Max did it with some Australian desert and some Jeeps with some things stuck on it, and it was really convincing. But they didn't. So, There's a lot of very loose weave knitwear, isn't there, in the far future? <laughs> sort of knit- netting. <laughs> Imagine, like, the nicer squatters in the town centre who are, you know, eco-warriors. Because there are various kinds of squatters, aren't there? But the kind of organised squatters that, you know, have kind of taken over that disused building. It's it's like, it's a future designed and lived in by the nicer people in that, in that sort of hippie eco-squat. Paul, what categories are we going to use for this? We have to talk about the plot. We have to talk about acting. <laughs> we have to talk about the acting. I'm going to throw in costumes. Costumes? Okay. We need to talk about... Special effects and action? Yeah! I mean, this essentially is a bit of... Not a crime detective movie, but it's kind of like... I don't know kind of like a mystery, isn't it? It's kind of a mystery thriller, isn't it, in a certain sort of way that doesn't resolve itself. That, or have a mystery, yeah. Or have a mystery, yeah. Because <laughs> all the trappings of a mystery thriller without the thrill of the mystery. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to talk about functionality. Is that okay? Like, what is all this happening for? Would that be fair enough? Okay. Functionality. Yeah. What's it all happening? Okay, okay. And then I think three is enough, really, isn't it? You could give it a joke. Well, we've just given five, haven't we, sir? Let's start then with plot plot. one. Acting and costumes two. Functionality three. Oh, you Uh, said action and effects four. We've got four. Cool. What should we start with? Let's talk about the plot, why don't we? Are the the six plots and the overarching, what does it all mean, weaved together? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We've learned out that time travel occurs. Because instead of wormholes, we control through plot holes. <laughs> when, when we discussed that the book is different and yeah, has a yeah. Russian doll, I'm interested to find out what the book's about. Yes, yeah, they've tackled a problem of trying to do a film in the same way by interweaving the narratives somewhat yeah. successfully. I mean, we were able to follow along, but there's a lot that is glossed over that's very quick that I didn't pick up. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you what the unanimists were all about or, you know, why the tribes were fighting at the end. You know, all of the future bits that are purely fantastical. Yeah. Too quickly sketched out for me to understand. And all of the historical bits, to the extent that I understood them, I mean, the history might have been wrong, but, you know, at least they were living in a world that we kind of understood already. Uh, But there's a weakness here. By trying to do too much too quickly in the film, and it, you know, just main, maybe this would have would have been better as a TV series on Netflix these days. Oh, or maybe people would just pay to watch V on repeat. <laughs> too much too quickly. I'm gonna give this as a movie plot a seven. Okay, this was an independent film. Yes. Uh, well, but yeah, the largest. It, it was very difficult to fund. Independent because, finance film. Yeah. Obviously, the Wachowskis... The largest budget. Very popular directors when it was made. 
Tom Hanks and the other actors were quite keen to make it. The largest budget ever for an independently financed film, 130 million. 146 million it came to at the end, okay? That's just on the filmmaking budget, not to do with the market. On that basis, if you're going to spend that kind of money, you need somebody to go over the fucking plot. You know? <laughs> and nobody has done. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've been giving advice. This doesn't work. It's a boothie. Whatever's in the book, they haven't teased out those essential elements and reduced them down to, and I think the choice here would have been three of these six timelines for a movie. Or two, preferably. But three to make it the kind of magical, ooh, look at the stars in the sky kind of thing. Uh, it doesn't work. It's it's loose. It's not coherently scripted. Whatever the novel was about. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to give it a two. Hey, that's a very big difference between us there, Paul. Hmm. So I, I was... This isn't the plot. I'm giving credit for the book in my seven. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not. I'm giving yeah, I see. Bit. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. All right. So acting then. I thought the acting was mostly perfunctory. Uh, it certainly did what it did. Uh, like I said, I think Tom Hanks kind of got stuck into a certain sort of period costume historical character that he likes to do. I'm sure he's been like in a Civil War movie where I think he just reprised some of those characters. Like, <laughs> and he's always like the good guy, isn't he? He's always really decent and, and honest, in particular the guy who flies out to another planet in the, at the end. These six segments. But yeah, I mean... I'm going to give the acting. I thought Tom Hanks was okay in this. I'm going to give the acting 7.5. This is like an actor workshop wet dream kind of thing, isn't it? They all get to do play dress up and do all kinds of different things. Yeah. Uh, it must have been kind of fun for them. I think the acting is worth a six for this. Okay. Right, on to special effects and action. Uh-huh. This, I thought, for me, was the strongest area yeah, I thought the tribal action and the fighting was all right, you know. I loved Neo Soul and all of the AR kind of restaurants and apartments. Yeah, and like it, I mean, that was nice. It just wasn't terribly convincing. I love the Blaxploitation 70s and, you know, the, car, the Starsky, and Hutch, Starsky and Hutch kind of exciting car chase action in there. So for action, I'm, I, I'm really happy about it. There wasn't anything particularly drop draw embarrassing about the special effects. I just don't think they're employed particularly well. And it was more about the world creation of the, you know, the future tech world creation. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, the uh, the uh, organo, organo tribal future. There just wasn't enough imagination put into those two world scenarios. So overall, I'm going to score it a 6.5, 6.5 for action and effect. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, it's a convincing film in the grand sweep of the different places and times that it visits. Yeah. I think it does take you into those places. As you, There was something a little bit unrealistic about Neo Soul. Perhaps that's the, partly the idea, though. There's a heck of a lot of brushed concrete in use. Um, but it didn't really seem kind of... It didn't seem... It didn't seem. You're quite right. I'm going to give it a six for action special effects. Okay. Rather randomly. And what was the next category you had in mind? Just the functionality of it, or what's it doing here in our minds, and what they're trying to say, if anything. Or is it just a riot of fun? <laughs> it's trying to say something serious. It isn't light-hearted. As you said, most of it is po-faced. There's some funny bits. 
I think it's it's kind of it's trying to be kind of a narrative rhyme, isn't it? In a way. Uh, oh, that's a nice idea to think about it. Not totally successfully, I have to say. Kind of like a time travel limerick kind of thing. But it doesn't pull it off because you don't. The connections between the stories are. I don't think they strike with any impact, really, do they? Possibly the bit there where. There was a young composer from Cambridge <laughs> whose music was worse than Bainbridge. He stuck out his thumb, pulled out a time plug, and travelled to the next instalment. You know, it's, it's like that, <laughs> isn't it, really? <laughs> sorry, go on, Richard. I'm really sorry about that. I'm going to have to give it a four. Not your your limerick was fine. Uh, that was where the didn't rhyme. The last it's a one. Is it one three two four five? It's supposed to this anyway. I didn't do it according to the stanza formation that you're supposed to be doing. That's okay, Paul. You you're allowed to bend the rules. The rules are made to be broken. That's that's the nature of limericks, isn't it? So before you scored it finally for, for functionality. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, for me, this is the most annoying thing. It's like what what they're trying to say. You've involved us three hours. It's very pole face. You're supposed to be saying something serious and worthwhile. You don't say anything about it, apart from wow, everything's connected, man. You know, it's just what on earth? What on earth? <laughs> uh, so for me, I can't score it any higher than. Four for its functionality. In the end, Richard. In the end. For me, it's going to remain... I I want to give it a four in terms of my scores, but I think people will actually just enjoy watching. It's not a naff movie. Can you score this lower than Inland Empire? I can't, no. No. Uh, You know, because I think it's it's not a movie where you go to laugh at the naffness. And I think at 130 mils, you should be able to laugh at this if it's truly naff. It's just... It's just mildly comic in just how it doesn't achieve anything or achieves things at slanted angles and bounces off in their own direction. It's just generally amusing. So if you've got three hours to waste, I think you would enjoy it. And for that reason, I'm going to give it a 5.5. And I think I've scored it lower than Inland Empire because of that. This is a great Christmas Day movie. Yeah. Imagine your elderly relatives asking you what's happening. (laughs) (laughs) And the great thing is... You don't need to stay watching it because it doesn't make sense anyway. Exactly, you can pop in and out, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make sense if you watch the whole thing. <laughs> so I'm going to give this higher than Inland Empire, certainly. I'm, Whoa. I'm going to give it, it higher the way through. I'm going to give it a 7. Yeah, that reflects your scores. Yeah. So 5.5 and 7, it's a recommend for different reasons. It doesn't resolve itself into self anything meaningful or in fact worthwhile, but if you've got time to waste, this is a good way to waste it. There we go. Richard, are we done with it? Okay, can I just dust my hands? Yeah, yeah. Not, not in a bad way. Uh, but that was three hours of my life that I'm never going to get back. Next week. Hold on. I have to say, because I recently rewatched James O'Caster's comedy, it, it is true to say, Paul, that Whoa. all the hours of your life are hours that you never get back. That's that the nature true. of time. It's always going away. <laughs> true, true, true. I stand corrected or sit correct. Uh, I kneel corrected. I, 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 I sit up and beg corrected, okay, if you give me a treat. Look, Richard, the treat is, you're going to throw my doggy away, is the movie that we're going to watch, or the media that we're going to watch next week. Right, yes, and what options are you giving us? Well, do you know what? I'm really sure that you'd love to watch some Adam Sandler, because I, I think... Last week I gave you this option and you said that you loved him as an actor. Is that right? That's the opposite of what I said. Why Why must you torment me this way? 
What do you if, mean? I'm not rattling anybody's cages here. If I? we watch an Adam Sandler movie, will we perhaps never have to watch another one ever again? Well, it might be a rabbit hole into watching more of uh, Adam Sandler's back catalogue if, if if that's something you'd be interested in. This is how drug addiction starts, isn't it? Sandler had an estimated net worth of 480 million in 2022. If the movie I suggest does involve payment, Richard, you will be directly contributing towards that fortune. Is that something you'd be happy with? It's, it would just be a drop in the ocean. But then, what is an ocean but a, a whole lot of drops? A whole lot of drips, you might say, for Adam Sandler. Go on then, what is this Adam Sandler Okay, it's movie? Uncut Gems from 2019. Old movie already, three years old. That's your first option. The second option is to watch all of Stranger Films, season four. Stranger and, Things. Uh, Stranger, what did I just say? Stranger Films. I'm really sorry. It's to watch all of Stranger, Stranger Things, season four, and tell us what you think about it next week, Richard. What would you like to do with those? Uh, well, I'm ripping the plaster off immediately. Let's do Adam fucking Sandler. Let's do Uncut Gems. And if Richard's still talking to me next week, because of that choice, <laughs> you I can hear we'll what we have to one. say. Until then. Until then. Ciao. For now. Bye. Bye. Thank you.